Thanks for tuning in to High Point Assembly's podcast, where you're going to hear a life-giving message that we hope will encourage you no matter where you are in your walk with Christ. Check out our website at highpointassembly.org for more podcasts, information, and how to join us live in person or online every Sunday. We hope this message blesses you wherever you may be listening from. And remember, no matter where you're at, you belong. Well, good morning, High Point. It is good to be with you this morning on our online service. And I want to begin this morning by wishing all of our mothers a very happy Mother's Day. Mom, you are an amazing group of people, and we are so thankful for every one of you. And boy, do we ever need you, because as I've said many times before, without you moms, we'd all be running around stupid, dirty, hungry, confused, and without any manners at all. But God has blessed us with you and how thankful we are because you are one of the greatest blessings he has given us. So this morning, we want you to know that we love you and that we honor you. And our prayer is that your day will be filled with blessings from our Heavenly Father, as well as from those who you love. So to all the moms, happy Mother's Day. Well, as you know, we've been in this series called The Standard where we have been dissecting the most famous sermon ever preached by Jesus himself, his Sermon on the Mount. This is the sermon full of the Beatitudes, all of those blessed are statements. And I honestly thought that last week was going to be the end of the sermon series. But as I read in chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, I saw that Jesus followed up with words that I believe sum up the reason for the Beatitudes that we have studied so far. What I mean by that is Jesus has made it clear that we aren't just supposed to be, uh, just supposed to know the Beatitudes, but his desire is that we, in fact, live by these Beatitudes. And we do so by being two very important things within our world. He says we need to be salt and light. But before we read our scripture reference, in fact, you can turn there to be ready for when we do Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16, I want to reflect on a successful American business story that I believe runs parallels to us, you and I, being salt and light. Back in the 1980s, the video rental industry was all the rage. And the reason it was the rage is because now people could watch movies in their home with absolutely no commercial interruption. And in 1985, a new king of the video rental industry began called Blockbuster Video. Now, if you're old enough to remember, back then, if your family craved a movie night, you'd get in your car and you'd drive to one of Blockbuster's 9,000 locations, and you'd stroll through aisles of VHS taped line shelves, you'd pick out a video, you'd hand your membership card to the person behind the counter in their blue-clad outfit, You'd pay your money and you'd drive home and watch that movie uninterrupted. But then you had to drive back to that same location to return that video within 24 hours to avoid a late fee. Well, not long after Blockbuster reluctantly made the changeover from VHS tapes to DVD because they had to, because technology was changing, a new company was founded called Netflix. And the genius behind Netflix was their marketing strategy. 
because they were customer oriented instead of store oriented. The product came to you instead of the other way around. Do you remember how Netflix operated at the beginning? You paid a monthly fee, and depending on the plan that you signed up for, Netflix would mail you as many DVDs as you wanted to watch. The movies came right into your mailbox, and there were no late fees, no driving involved. When you finish with a movie, you just put it in the handy mailer, and you send it back to them. Well, Netflix's strategy worked because people loved the convenience. And over time, Netflix began to eat up Blockbuster's profits as well as their customers. And about that time, the founder of Netflix, Reed Hastings, he went to have a meeting with Blockbuster CEO John Antiaco with the purpose of forming a partnership. But Antiaco was not interested at all. In fact, Hastings was laughed out of the office. And in spite of Netflix's huge growth and their success with their customer-first model, Blockbuster stubbornly doubled down on its store-first model. And that's when they started selling popcorn and books and toys and all kinds of things in addition to the DVDs. Well, we all know who had the last laugh, because it only took 10 years for Netflix to become number one. And of course, today, Blockbuster is busted. They, they filed for bankruptcy many, many years ago. And Netflix continues to thrive by becoming even more oriented toward the needs of their customers. Today, you don't even have to go to the mailbox because with newer technology, Netflix movies and, and store show, shows and series are streamed right into your home. In fact, Netflix is now the world's leading entertainment, streaming entertainment service with over 183 million paid memberships over 190 countries. Their customer-first approach instead of the store-first marketing strategy has worked. And today, more and more businesses are following suit. Now, the reason I shared all that with you wasn't just to give you a history on Netflix. Believe me, I don't own any stock in them. But it is to make us think about our own marketing strategy. What I mean is this. As Christians, we too are in a business of sorts. We offer a product. We offer a life-changing, eternity-securing message that we are called upon to convey to this world in which we live. And they are our customers. And in today's text, Jesus gives us the only marketing strategy that will work in fulfilling the great commission that he has called us to act upon. In fact, I think the guys at Netflix must have introduced this or may, must have been influenced by this because it's kind of similar. So take your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 5, and you'll see why I say this. I want you to follow along as I read in Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but what if the salt loses its flavor? How shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven." 
Before we go any further, I want to underscore the foundational truth that, that Jesus was conveying, conveying at this particular part of his Sermon on the Mount. Our Lord was saying that Christians who, who live out their faith, Christians who grow toward Christ-likeness, well, they're precious. And to fully comprehend this, we need to remember the historical context in which Jesus spoke these words. This is important. Because in our day and age, salt and light are both taken for granted. I think it's safe to say that in the cupboards of most households in America, you'll find containers of salt. In fact, today there are even different varieties of salt used in in cooking. And not only do we have the standard salt shakers that we use on a daily basis, but we also have special shakers with holiday themes. And of course, if you ever go out to eat, every table has salt and pepper shakers on the table. And for good measure, some of us even hide those little salt paper packs that we picked up at a fast food restaurant in in the glove compartments of our car, or even ladies carry them in their purse as a backup. What I'm trying to say is that for us, salt is everywhere. It's really no big deal. It's probably the cheapest thing that you can buy at a grocery store. And when you speak of light, well, that's not much different because it's not a big deal for us. We have lights on our, on our key rings. We have lights on our cell phones. We even have lights in the soles of the shoes that our children wear. And sometimes without even thinking about it, we walk into a room and we, we flip on a switch. And sometimes we leave that switch open and burning. In fact, I, I bet there are lights on in your house during the daytime hours when you're not even there. Well, things were very different in Jesus' day. Things were very different for these people who heard him speak these words on that mountainside. Back then, salt and light were not taken lightly at all because these two things were, in fact, very, very precious. They were were greatly valued in that culture. For example, salt was so highly esteemed that the Greeks thought it was divine. One commentary I read said that they worshipped a salt god. And the Romans, well, their soldiers were often paid with salt. Can you imagine that? A centurion would walk up to the table of the payroll officer on the 15th and the 30th of every month, and he'd say, "Uh, let's see, you're a corporal in the hand-to-hand combat division. That means you get this Morton salt container and uh, plus uh, one, two, three extra pinches of salt. There you go. Don't spend it all in one place. By the way, this is where we get the phrase, not worth his salt. It's also the root for our word salary. My point is that salt was precious back then. It was incredibly valuable. And light was just as treasured because it wasn't easy to have. It was a lot of trouble and a lot of expense to have even the smallest illumination of an oil lamp back then. These Jews had to carry around little clay dishes with oil and wicks along with a flint to light these fragile little lamps if they ever wanted to see anything at night. There were no light switches for them to turn on. There were no street lights to brighten the roads. After sunset, the people literally stumbled around in the darkness, which meant a lot of stubbed toes because in those days they didn't wear shoes, they wore sandals. Light to these people was a, was a precious luxury. So when Jesus used these two metaphors, the people would have understood what he was getting at, which was simple. In his opinion, genuinely devoted disciples of Christ are precious. Jesus was saying they were worth 
and are worth their weight in gold or salt for that matter. And if you encounter someone who is, who is very serious about following Jesus, if they are passionate about becoming more and more like Christ and committed to doing his will, remember that that individual is priceless. In fact, take a moment and think about the most Christ-like believers that you know. I know of several faces that immediately pop into my head when I make that statement. But whoever it is that you are thinking of, wouldn't you agree that these people are precious to you? Think of all the things God has taught you through their priceless example day after day. Think about the way that they have made the lives of people within their realm of influence better. They have literally changed their part of their little world. And so how do we follow their example? How can we do the same? What is the strategy that Jesus is giving us here? Well, first of all, Jesus is saying we can't change people when we don't know people. Jesus is making it clear that the blockbuster marketing strategy just doesn't work. We will not be able to fulfill the Great Commission by focusing solely on getting people to come into here, into the building that we know as the church. We've got to go out to them. We've got to get to know them. We've got to become more like Netflix. We have to be customer or people-oriented instead of store-oriented, or should I say even church-oriented. Whether you know it or not, the things that we do on this campus are primarily geared to equip you to go out and to fulfill what Jesus asked of each one of us. It's the ministry of equipping others to go out. In fact, in Ephesians 4, 11, it says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. This is important to know because in order for us to fulfill the Great Commission, to sell our product, to change people in this world for the better, we've got to go after them. We have to come into direct contact with them through authentic, genuine, caring relationships. And it would have been easy for people on the mountainside that day to understand this particular principle. They knew that in order for salt to be a preservative, it had to be rubbed into the meat. It did the meat no good at all if that salt just stayed in the barrel. And they also knew that, that light was only good when it was used in the darkness. In short, they would have understood that Jesus expected his followers to be involved in the real world. And ladies and gentlemen, we need to do the same. Authentic disciples, those who, who want to change the world for Jesus Christ, don't isolate or insulate themselves from society. I stress this basic fact because sadly, that's what a whole lot of us do. Now, obviously, I'm not talking about what we're dealing with right now with these imposed isolations that have been created by COVID-19. What I'm saying is that some of us separate our faith from life to the extent that we have absolutely no contact with non-Christians. We have no impact on the lost people in our community around us because we don't spend any time with them, we don't know them, and we don't relate to them. I came across a shocking study that was done by the Center 
for the study of, of global Christianity. And this study showed that one out of five non-Christians in North America don't personally know a single follower of Jesus. That's 13,447,000 people who don't have a Christian friend or acquaintance. The percentages get higher for certain cultural and religious groups. For example, 65% of Buddhists, 75% of Chinese, 78% of Hindus, and 43% of Muslims in America do not personally know a Christ follower. This is astounding because statistics tell us that 71% of people in this country are Christians. Now, the only explanation for all of these lost people not knowing Christians, as best I can see, happens for, one, for, for only two reasons. Either Christians are keeping their faith a secret, or we're avoiding non-believers like the plague. Listen, we can't change this world until we get into it. They're not going to come to us. The blockbuster mentality simply doesn't work anymore. In fact, sometimes inviting a non-Christian home, a non-Christian to your home for dinner can have a bigger spiritual impact on them than them even coming through these doors of this church or any church for that matter. You see, in order to help people come to know Jesus, we have to come to know people who don't know Jesus. It's okay to have friends who are Muslim. It's okay to have Buddhists and atheists or just plain lost people as friends and acquaintances. We have, in order for us to go, we have to know non-Christians. We can't hide behind and in our Christian cliques anymore. We just can't do that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, a Christian who seeks to hide himself has ceased to follow Jesus. We need to, to befriend lost people, whatever their story is and wherever that they're from. Another interesting study was published by Scientific American Magazine. It says that each of us speak an average of 16,000 words per day. But this study also showed that, that we share those 16,000 words with a very small group of the same people over and over again. Although most of us converse with people every day, about 80%, they say, of our words are shared with a small group of about five trusted confidants, allies, and buddies. We only talk to, we only relate to people in our inner circle, people who think like us, people who care about us, and people who believe in us. But we can't share Jesus with people unless we talk to them. Do you remember Paul's words in Romans 10, 10, 14? He said, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? Here's my paraphrase of that verse. How can lost people believe in Jesus Christ when all they've heard about him is untruth and misrepresentations? And furthermore, how can they hear the real truth about Jesus if someone like you and I don't tell them? Listen, we won't fulfill the Great Commission unless more of us start using some of our 16,000 daily words to talk to lost people. We have to be more like our Lord. He spent his days with non-religious people. We have to become like him. 
We have to become a friend of sinners. Remember, salt that stays on the shelf does absolutely no good. And light that is hidden is a complete waste. We need to be constantly thinking, how can I get to know and how can I reach more lost people? Global missions expert Paul Borthwick shared this following story. He writes, a young man named Peter reminded me of a modern-day Philip. I stopped into a McDonald's in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I noticed Peter working the counter. I recognized him from our young adult ministry at church, and I knew he had just graduated from Harvard University with a master's degree. I greeted him and managed to get him to break free for a coffee together. What are you doing here, I asked, knowing that a Harvard master's degree student doesn't usually aspire to work at a counter at McDonald's. Well, he explained, I graduated in May, but I went four months without finding a job, so I said to myself, I need some income to pay my bills. So this is where I've ended up, at least for now. I'm sorry to hear that. It must be hard, I replied, but Peter cut me off. He said, no, don't, don't be sorry. God has me here. This place is giving me awesome opportunities to share my faith. I'm on a shift that includes a Buddhist guy from Sri Lanka, a Muslim fellow from Lebanon, a Hindu lady from India, and a fellow Christian from El Salvador. It's awesome. I get to be a global missionary to my coworkers while asking, would you like fries with that? He laughed and so did I. Like Philip, Peter found himself in a setting he never would have chosen as part of his long-term plan, but his mindset of living as a sent person shaped the way he looked at his circumstances and all the people around him. This young man, Peter, is going to where the people are. He saw this temporary job as a, as a chance, an opportunity for him to be salt and light, as Jesus asked of us in his world. He's what I would call a Netflix Christian, and we need more people like him. And that leads me to the second part of this aspect of our marketing strategy. Number two, we can't change the world without being a part of it. You know, we all spend a lot of time complaining. We complain about how bad our culture is and how bad it's become. Well, can, can I just say that I think Christians play a part of that blame? Because in the same way that we aren't going to change people by expecting them to come through the doors of this church, we can't change the world if we say inside the four walls of this church. Jesus is saying the world is like rotting meat. And you and I are to be the world's preserving salt. And just like salt is used in putrefying beef, so my followers are to hinder social decay. He's saying that the world is, is, is like a dark night. And you are to be the world's light. And just like light in the prevailing darkness, you are to illuminate society. You are to sh show society a different way, a better way of living. Do you understand what, what Jesus is saying here? When we really make him Lord of our life, he uses us to help stop the decay in our society. He emboldens and empowers us to stand up, to go against the flow and say, that's wrong. People shouldn't be allowed to behave like that. I'm saying real Christian disciples get involved. They get involved in their communities. They get involved in their PTA, in local government. They stand up for, for Christian principles. They encourage the passage of, of godly laws. 
They don't go with the flow so much that they become like this fallen world in which we live. No, they don't let their salt lose its saltiness by being diluted by our culture. But with the help of the Holy Spirit, they stand up for their faith and they speak out the truth. In the same way that salt extends the best if used by date on meat, we're to be involved in slowing the decline of our culture. And I, just like many of you, believe it's all coming to a head and that Jesus could literally come and take us home at any moment. But we can't use that as an excuse to continue to isolate ourselves and simply wait. we got a job to do. And just as light guides us in the darkness, we must help people to see why doing the right thing is always literally better than doing the wrong thing. Pastor Ray Pritchard said, We who follow Christ are to be a moral disinfectant, stopping the spread of evil. We are to be the conscience of the community, speaking out for what is true and right. And I would have to say a big amen to that. Christians make this world a better place. We are the one who leads the fight against hunger and disease. We are the ones who build homes for the homeless. We are the ones who speak out for the dignity and the value of all human life, from from babies in the womb to the aged. We are the ones who speak out against hatred and racism. We go against the flow. We help to slow down the moral and the spiritual spoilage in this world. There was a Peanuts cartoon that showed Peppermint Patty, Patty talking to Charlie Brown in which she said, guess what, Chuck? This is the first day of school, and I got sent to the principal's office. It was your fault, Chuck. And Charlie Brown responds, my fault? How could it be my fault? Why do you say everything is my fault? To which she replies, you're my friend, aren't you, Chuck? You should have been a better influence on me. Well, obviously, Peppermint Patty was trying to pass the buck, but she's also speaking some truth. We should be a good influence on all of those who surround us. It's our calling, and it's our job. In August of 2000, a reporter from Jackson, the Jackson, Mississippi Clarion Ledge named Matt Friedman shared the following testimony. It was of an encounter that he had with a Christian who understood this principle that I'm talking about this morning. He writes, several months ago, I was on a TV show to discuss with other panel members recent problems plaguing the Jackson, Mississippi community. The city council was in disarray because the council president and another councilman were headed off to jail. The council president had been caught making shady deals with a strip club in relation to a rezoning ordinance. The panel moderator, a news lady named Katrina Rankin, looked at me and asked, Matt, whose fault is all of this? Suddenly I became agitated. I was prepared to tell her in dramatic on-air fashion that we are in a nation of laws and that the council president trampled on those laws. If we were looking for a place to lay the blame, there was only one place to put it smack dab in his lap as he sat in his well-deserved jail cell. That was what I was going to say, but I never got the words out. One of the panelists sitting next to me was a gentleman named John Perkins, author, teacher, community developer, and national evangelical leader. Before I could respond, Perkins answered, it's my fault. 
All heads turned his way, and he elaborated. I have lived in this community for decades as a Bible teacher. I should have been able to create an environment where what our council president did would have been unthinkable because of my efforts. You want someone to blame? I take the blame. All of it. Perkins understood that as a student of the Bible, as someone who knew Jesus Christ on a personal level, as someone who knew the difference between right and wrong, he knew it was his job to speak up. It was his job to be a positive influence. And so he honestly felt that he had failed personally. He failed to be a positive influence to his community. We shouldn't expect ungodly people to do godly things. That's our job. So let me ask you this morning, is there something in your world that needs a positive influence? Do you hate your work environment because it's, it's so cutthroat? Is your neighborhood a bad place to live for some reason? Are there hard feelings going on between your friends? Does your next door neighbor seem to be unable to mow his lawn? Is there any annoying needs in your little world? I think you know what I'm trying to get at. Is there any rotting flesh going on around you? Well, disciple of Jesus Christ, it's time to stop complaining and it's time to start doing something about it. This is a part of what it means to follow Jesus. This is what salt and light people do. We don't avoid the bad. We get, invo we get involved because it's what it takes in order to make things better. Let me point out one final principle of our marketing strategy, and then I'll be done. Number three, we can't draw people to Jesus if they don't see us following him. We have to show by the way that we live our lives that our faith works, because when we do, guess what? People want what it is that you have. Just like salt makes people thirsty, just like light illuminates something else, maturing, genuine disciples of Christ who live out their faith daily, they point away from themselves and they point the spotlight onto Jesus. I'm reminded of the little boy who, while he was sitting in church with his mother, he was noticing the beauty of the stained glass that was all around him. And curiosity finally got the best of him. And he pointed out and he asked to his mom, he said, who are those people? His mother responded, they are saints. And then sensing this great teaching moment, she asked her little son, do you know what saints are? And after he paused for a moment and gave it some thought, he responded, they are people that light shines through. Well, that's a good answer. Because that's what those saints on that stained glass literally do. The light shines through them. And that's what real disciples are like. They are Christ-like in that they let Jesus shine through them. They follow Jesus so closely, they literally let, let him use them in ways where they kind of disappear and Jesus comes to the forefront. When Jesus said to us, let your light shine. He didn't tell us to hold it up and cry out, look at me, I'm a Christian. I'm a good and a wonderful person. Don't you wish you were like me? No, he didn't tell us to do that at all. A light does not call attention to itself. Rather, it points the way through the darkness. 
And Saul is another great illustration of this principle of discipleship because one of its functions is to make something else taste good. I don't know about you, but when I've eaten a a good piece of corn on the cob that I really like, I don't put it down and say, boy, that was good salt. I say that was great corn on the cob. Because here's the deal. The job of salt is not to make you think how great the salt is, but instead how great the thing is in which the salt is on or that it's involved with. Well, do you do this? Does the way you live your life show other people how good Jesus is? Colossians 4, 6 says, Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Can people look at your life and because of your conversations being full of grace and seasoned with salt, that they can literally see Christ in you? Can they look at your discipleship and say, that person must know Jesus, they must be a believer, I need to talk to them because I want what they possess. I want to know Jesus too. I read that in the city of Cairo, Egypt, they have their own unique version of poverty called Garbage City. Each morning at dawn, some 7,000 garbage collectors on horse-drawn carts leave for Cairo where they collect the garbage that's left behind by the city's 7 million inhabitants. After their day's work, they return to Garbage City, they bring the trash back to their homes, and they sort out the trash, what is useful. Well, in Muslim countries, there are certain religious restrictions on sifting through refuse. So most of the inhabitants inhabitants of of Garbage City are either non-religious or they are from some form of a Christian heritage. These are the poorest among the poor. They are the outcasts among all outcasts. Well, back in 1972, a young Egyptian businessman lost his wristwatch. And get this, the watch was valued at $11,000. Must have been a nice watch. As you can imagine, it would have been unthinkable to have a valuable timepiece returned by any member of Garbage City. Yet an old garbage man, literally dressed in rags, found the man's name etched on the watch, and he returned it to him, and he said, my Christ told me to be honest until death. Because of the garbage man's act of of obedience, the Egyptian businessman later told the newspaper reporter this. He said, I did not know Christ at that time, but I told the garbage man that I saw Christ in him. I told him because what you have done And because of your great example, I will worship the Christ that you are worshiping. True to his word, this businessman studied the Bible. He became a Christian and he grew in his faith. Soon he and his wife began ministering to Egypt's physically and spiritually poor. In 1978, he was ordained by the Coptic Orthodox Church and he now leads a church that meets outside of Garbage City. Please don't tell me that you and I don't have any influence in our world. And please don't suggest to me that people are too far gone. That is not our determination to make. While there is still breath within the lungs of any, any human being, they can receive Jesus Christ and their life can be transformed. And there are so many out there who would be interested if you would just start talking to them. And eventually that talking would lead to you sharing 
your own personal salvation story. So can you see the importance of us living by these beatitudes that that Jesus has shared in his Sermon on the Mount? When we don't just know them, but when we, we live by them, here's the point. People notice. And because they have been intrigued by the fact that we live differently than the rest of the world, then you are given passage to speak truth to them in love. You're not just like everyone else. You are a child of the Most High God, and His Spirit indwells you. And when God's Spirit indwells you, ladies and gentlemen, people see it, and people feel it, and they are often even convicted by it. And so in love, whatever you share, what Christ has done for you in your life, and and you explain how God's Spirit now indwells you, because they've already witnessed that by your daily living, you've got instant credibility, and they will listen out of respect to what you have to say. Let me just add this point, because it's very important to say, you and I can't save anybody, okay? First of all, let's get that out. We can't save anybody. Only Jesus can save. But your testimony, you sharing God's goodness and what he's done in your life puts everything into motion. Just because you may not lead that individual to Christ on that first encounter, you have planted seeds of truth within them. And the Holy Spirit takes those seeds and they be, something begins to blossom in their heart. And whether it is you that leads them to Christ or whether it is someone else, they will one day receive Jesus as Lord and Savior and you will have played a part in their salvation. So as we've studied these Beatitudes... Let's learn to live by them daily in our lives. Let's become men and women of God who become salt and light to all people who we come into contact with. This is what Jesus needs us to be. Because in doing so, it opened doors for us to share what Christ has done in us. Plus, when we are being obedient to God's call to reach other people, and therefore we are fulfilling the Great Commission. You know, I've been thinking this week about the past six weeks or so when we've been involved in this stay-at-home order. And truthfully, I think if you dissect it all down, and if we were all being honest, most of our thoughts have been geared around me, my family, my needs, what I'm lacking, and what does the future look like for me? This scripture reminded me that even in these unusual circumstances, we've got to start thinking about others. I think I mentioned to you last week, maybe it was the week before, how disconnected I feel from all of you. Not being able to see you, not being able to talk to you, shake your hand, hug you, interact with you. Well, if I can feel that way, knowing Jesus, can you imagine how those those who don't know Jesus have been feeling through all of this? They need Jesus. And truly, I believe that this whole thing is creating a thirst in people for what they're lacking, and that is a relationship with Christ. This is now and will be, once these orders are lifted and and we can get back to somewhat a normal life, a huge mission field surrounds us. Let us not be satisfied with just knowing that we have received salvation and in knowing who holds our future in his hands but let's have the desire to want to see others receive the assurance that we have received in Christ Jesus. Will you bow your heads and pray with me, please? 
Father, again, I, I thank you for your word. And I thank you for this sermon, the Beatitudes. It is just powerfully full of information and ways in which we are to live as believers in Jesus Christ. And Father, when I got down to this, this scripture about being salt in life, it really did sum up all the scriptures before. You want us to be salt and light, and to be salt and light, we need to follow these Beatitudes that you have laid out for us. And Father, I think we all understand that. We get so busy, however, in life that sometimes we lose sight of the fact that you've called us to do more than just receive salvation, but you have called us to share our story, your story, with other people so that they can come to know you too. And maybe there are people watching here today, Father, who don't know you as Lord and Savior, and I pray that during this prayer time that they would have the courage to just reach out to you and say, Jesus, I want you to be the Lord of my life. Forgive me of my sin. Cleanse me and make me whole. And Father, you are faithful and you are just to cleanse them of all unrighteousness, to give them a new start in life. And I thank you for that. And I pray, Father, that they would cry out to you today and receive salvation. The Lord, once we receive that salvation and we grow and we are discipled and we become more Christ-like, we want to naturally share your goodness with others. And so I pray in the name of Jesus that you would give us as a body of believers boldness. You would give us a desire to want to share your goodness with others. Father, that we would find it unnatural to be clammed up and to not speak about you outside of these walls. But we would understand because of your goodness and your greatness and what you've done, we can't hold it in. We have to share it with others. We have to say, this is what Christ has done for me. And if he can do this for me, he can do this for you. So God, I pray that you would give us a desire. You would give us a passion for the things of God and what you've done that you allow us to speak forth with your presence directing us, your spirit directing our words and the things we say and tell about your goodness and share it with other people. Father, I guess I'm saying, give us a love for everyone. It is so easy to, to love those who love us in return. It is difficult sometimes to love people, particularly when they are critical and harsh of our Lord and Savior. But as I said last week, Father, let us understand that they're victims. They're victims of a world that has twisted their thinking and they need their thinking switched and changed and twisted by you. God, I pray that they would see the light and I pray that we would be the light that would begin that whole process and that we would be the salt that would add flavor in the way that we live that they would say, something is different about that man. Something is different about that woman and I want to be like them. So God, I'm praying that you would use us particularly even in this time where we're being isolated, and hopefully that's going to be over soon. And God, I really believe people are going to have a lot more questions than answers. And I pray that we would be the answer man, that we could answer the questions that people have regarding their future, regarding their security, regarding the end of time. Help us, Lord. Strengthen us. Show us ways in which we can share your goodness. And Father, I even pray that you would open opportunities for us and Father, that we become eminently clear when that door is open. We would never question it, but we would walk through and we would do what you've asked us to do. Because when we do that, you use us. And it's always a positive situation. And that only encourages us to do it more. So open our hearts, open our minds, open our eyes to those around us who are broken and who are hurting and who desperately need you. And let us be agents of salt and light to their lives. I ask in Jesus' name.
Amen.